0: These are extraordinary times, but with too much information and much of it confusing. On Body Ecology Living, I interview some of the best minds to help you live your best life possible. We'll discuss topics on using foods to heal, on building a hearty immune system, on aging well, on taking care of your gut and, of course, your brain. But most of all, on clarifying the right steps to be happier, healthier, and having the energy to make a difference in your own world. Welcome, everybody, to Body Ecology Living. I'm really excited today to to have this podcast interview with my longtime friend, Mark David. He started a special program years ago called The Psychology of Eating. And there's never a better time for us to do this interview. I hope you stay on for the whole interview because I am positive you'll learn some life-changing information. So thank you very much, Mark, for scheduling this and doing this podcast.
1: Don, it's so great to be with you. It's so great to be in conversation with you. We go back a long ways. And as you know, I I knew you before we knew each other because I just followed you and you've been just an iconic voice in the health field for so long. So I feel very lucky.
0: Thank you. Well, ditto, because once we met and I realized, well, people don't know this about me, but my first undergraduate degree was in child development because I really wanted to understand how do we humans develop physically, emotionally. um, And then I went on to get a master's degree in counseling from Loyola University. So I'm of course, very, very interested in, in that, too, you know, our emotional development. So I also have had, since a kid, like, an incredible interest in nutrition. I started off in college to be a dietitian, and it was such a disappointing uh, program, like, so far from what I thought uh, I wanted to learn so I could help people. So that's why... And I also had this love for, you know, our behavior and our feelings, and also we had a really you know, difficult childhood too, and I was hurting and trying to figure myself out and and behaviors of other people. So never did I think of putting a program together of my two loves, but you've done that. So can you tell people a little bit about you and the psychology of eating and the program you developed so we can kind of start there?
1: Sure. Great question. Thank you. Like a lot of us, I started out in nutrition completely out of personal need. You know, I was born into this world. I was sickly. I was asthmatic. I almost died a handful of times in infancy. Mm. And this is, you know, back in the late 50s, early 60s. My parents, God bless them, they took me from doctor to doctor, nothing helped. And I also suffered from some type of undiagnosed autoimmune disease. My knees and joints were in constant pain. So I heard a rumor at age five that fruits and vegetables were good for you. And I was raised in the generation of just pure junk food and TV dinners and Velveeta cheese and Pop-Tarts. So I asked my mother, I was five years old. I asked her to buy me apples and peas and carrots in a can because somehow that was my concept of fruits and vegetables. She bought them. Coincidence or not, my health started to change. And that was so magical for me because I realized that the body was magic, that life was magic, and that I had some power. I could do something about my health that all the big people couldn't do. And so, of course, that led just to just an absolute fanatic relationship with food and nutrition i learned as much as i can and you know back in the 70s you could you could actually read every nutrition book out there <laughs> i literally had every book and i had every textbook that you could you could possibly find and at some point in my late teens i started working with clients ie my friends you know who saw me in college and watched me eating weird strange food i was eating seaweed and tofu and people would ask me questions and I would look to help my friends with a lot of them wanted to lose weight and I started coaching them and basically telling them eat this don't eat that and what would happen was we'd meet next week and my friends would tell me you know I know what you told me to do I know what I'm supposed to eat I just couldn't do it and yet another light bulb goes off in my head and I thought to myself unless I understand the mind of the eater and the heart and the soul of the eater, how we work, how we think, I really can't help people from a nutritional standpoint because you just can't tell somebody, well, stop eating that or don't do that. It doesn't quite do the trick for everyone. So at some point I looked to study eating psychology And, you know, I was in medical school for a year. I left. I wanted to be a nutritional doctor and I just couldn't make it. I I didn't like the education and I decided I wanted to study eating psychology. And this is back in 1981. There was no place to learn it. I couldn't even find a course in it. I found one school where I can do an internship in eating disorders. And, you know, I was interested in eating disorders But that was, at that point, less than 1% of the population. And my thinking is, what about all the other people I know who binge eat and they're overeating and they're emotionally eating and they don't like their bodies and they can't control their appetite and they're constantly dieting? What about them, which is the other 95 plus percent of us? So I decided that I would eventually write the book that I wanted to read, and I decided I would create the training that I wish I could have taken, but I'm going to have to learn on the job. So I found a school, Sonoma State University in California, that would, it was a master's degree in psychology, and they let me do an independent study in eating psychology. And long story short, a lot of client hours, a lot of trial and error over the years, and slowly and steadily developed a body of work. And after thousands of client hours, I started the Institute for the Psychology of Eating in 2007. We essentially have a coaching program where we train professionals how to work with weight and body image and overeating and binge eating and emotional eating and people who are endlessly dieting. And we blend psychology and nutrition because you need both. We need to understand the body. We need to understand our physiology. We need to understand metabolism, as you know. And we need to know how to work with another human being and understand what's stopping me from creating the positive changes that I wish to create. And why would a person binge eat or overeat? So it's a very positive psychology that we teach. And I, I just love the work. You know, we've we've reached millions of people through just our online events and courses and programs. So, you know, if I was on my deathbed today, I would die a happy man in terms of I've accomplished so much of what I wanted to accomplish. And yet there's so much more I want to do.
0: Mm-hmm. My, You know, we're such twin souls. I had the same Path in life, and kind of just obviously, you were directed in the direction we end up in. But uh, you said so much there. I hope we can impact part of that. But first of all, I think this program needs to be in every nutrition program out there, every naturopath, medical doctor, sports PT person. You know, everybody needs to have a course in this because you can't divorce how we eat from our emotions. And I guess you know, you could say which is more important. I guess they're so wrapped together that they're both equally important. Maybe you disagree with me on that. But the thing is, you said so many in things like, so somebody might say, well, I don't have a weight problem or an eating disorder, although a lot of people have both, but especially a weight problem. But you said something else that really applies to many millions of people, even just last week, I was on a trip, actually, and and my cousin was with me, and she said, I really want to eat healthy. And I know she does, but she said, I can't stop cravings for carbs. And I said, well, you know, they're very addictive. So, like, if you eat them today, you have a cookie today, you're going to want that cookie or something like it tomorrow. But this, like you, this, in your early days, this was something I have battled and, you know, questioned, actually, my entire career. Is why doesn't everybody take better care of their body? The information's out there. Uh, do they just not love themselves enough? Um, why did people drink, for example, and become even alcoholics? What is this destructive force in us? You know, is it something that um, it's got to be addressed? So, could we start first with that? Like something very simple that applies to billions of people is why can't I not eat well and control my cravings when I really want to?
1: Mm-hmm. Let's let's such a great question. And there's so many doorways, I think, that we can go through if we go through the doorway of, well, why can't I just do what I say I want to do? Why can't I just take care of myself? I know I want to do that. What's stopping me? I think a first place to look. And you mentioned this, you know, one of the first things you said, you talked about your passion for, you know, developmental psychology. Well, let's, let's look at the typical infant. You have an infant and it's crying and it's screaming and it's out of control. And all of a sudden you give that infant mama and mama gives that infant the bottle or the breast. Mm-hmm. And within seconds of getting the bottle or the breast, getting milk, that infant relaxes. Everything completely changes from a very young age you and i have the genetic memory and we also have that memory from generations and generations feel bad eat food feel better and at that point to the infant's as yet developed nervous system that tiny little baby isn't sitting in mama's arms thinking okay this is my mother holding me this is the warmth of her skin this is her soothing voice this is the love i feel this is the taste of milk in my mouth. It's all one experience. Food is love. Love is mother. Touch is food, and it's it's all encoded in the body as one. So we use food, and and he, here's the beauty of it. It's it's a wonderful part of being human that we use food to regulate our emotional experience. Uh, watch you know any any nature video. Watch a carnivore looking for food and making a catch and making a kill, all of a sudden that carnivore, that animal relaxes. When it's on the hunt and it's hungry, it's intense. And afterwards you have a well-fed creature who can chill, who is now in a relaxation response. And so even, even at the most primitive level where all designed, every creature is designed to seek pleasure and avoid pain, So when you and I eat, we're seeking the pleasure of food. We avoid the pain of hunger. And the double bonus is that food, because it's pleasurable, helps take away, at least momentarily, any other unwanted, uncomfortable emotional or life experience. It just works that way. So when somebody tells me, you know, I emotionally eat, let's say, the first thing I want to tell them is you have a great reason for doing that. It makes perfect sense. It makes biological sense. It makes psychological sense why you would do that. Because we have emotions. I'm angry. I'm lonely. I'm bored. I'm anxious. I'm afraid. And it might be a little bit harder to, oh, figure out, gosh, how do I let go of my anxiety? Do I meditate? Do I listen to music? Do I have to figure something out about myself? For a lot of people, it's much easier to go to the refrigerator and go for the food that's going to relax you because then you have a sort of a symbolic substitute when you can't get the thing you really want. Psychologists call it, you reach for a symbolic substitute, the closest approximation of the thing that you actually want. So if you want love, if you want relaxation, you want connection, you want intimacy, you wanna feel good, but you don't have that easily available, anybody just about can go and grab some food. And you can get that moment, yes. So, so I think it's it's good to start from the place of it makes sense why we do that behavior, and then part of the challenge becomes we often have to find a reason for change, a reason to change my habit that supersedes the immediate gratification of the habit. So any food, the carbs, the sugar, the chocolate, it provides immediate gratification. And once again, think the infant mind. Infants want immediate gratification. Toddlers want immediate gratification. You you couldn't tell your son and daughter when they were three years old, listen, I'm not gonna give you so much ice cream every day because when you get older, it might affect your weight, it might affect your gut flora, it might affect inflammation. Three-year-old doesn't want to hear that. I want what I want when I want it. Now, that's a feature of the human brain and what happens is many of us get a little stuck there. We get stuck in immediate gratification as opposed to the delayed gratification kind. So if I'm not feeling good about myself, reach for alcohol because it's gonna make me feel good right away It takes a maturing process to say, oh, that's the habit of a two-year-old, a five-year-old, even a 12-year-old. That's an old habit that in my personal growth, in my spiritual growth, if I'm going to grow, then I need to learn how to be a different human being. Does that all make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. And you were saying that, uh, a lot of sense actually, but um, every bit of it, but you were saying that, you know, this even goes back into, into generations and it reminded me of studies. When a woman's pregnant and she's eating, a lot. let's say, a lot of carbs, that baby's going to want a lot of carbs. So it actually starts even before we're born. Biologically, we're craving, you know, wanting, preferring carbs. And that, uh, every... Family. Every child I've ever worked with with autism is super addicted to carbs. Um, you can't. It's hard with a child to get them off of carbs. I mean, I would think the number one. I mean, not everybody's is alcoholic, but I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of people out in the world that are stuck with their carb cravings. You know, they have to have bread. They can't give it up. There's that addictive quality to those foods. Yes. But what you're saying is, is that you've got to mature enough, which could take a while, maybe never. Um, to have another reason for wanting to overcome that desire to have that piece of bread or cookie or whatever. So, when I'm wondering, like for example, women, a lot of women I've noticed that don't eat very well. When they become pregnant, all of a sudden, they do want to start to eat better. They may not know how to yet, but it's Mm -hmm. too bad, too late. But that's a motivation. But can you, uh, so let's talk about that some more. What if somebody isn't going to mature enough or they don't have a, How would they find a reason that's strong enough to overcome that daily desire for that piece of chocolate?
1: Such a good question. We have to wish to find a reason. Uh, Let's look at it this way. Uh, A a typical client that I've seen, I've, I've probably seen this kind of person hundreds of times who will say, I'm addicted to chocolate. And they generally eat a bunch of chocolate and they eat chocolate every day. And they know they don't want to eat chocolate. It gives them a high. They love it. And shortly afterwards, they get brain fog. They get a little bit irritable or they get fatigued and or they're gaining weight. And they want to get off of chocolate, but they can't get off of chocolate. So how I work with a person like that is, in general, when you look at that person's life, the best thing they usually have going in their life is chocolate. That's the best thing. And it's, it's oftentimes that profile of a person, they might be lonely, they might not have relationship, they might not have intimacy, they might not have the kind of work that keeps them engaged, they might not have the kinds of relationships that feed them and nourish them, they might not have the kinds of personal interests or hobbies that inspire them, and we're human. You want to feel good. So when you don't have all the natural goodies in life, connection, family, loved ones, intimacy, touch, children, grandchildren, pets, a purpose, a way to give your gifts, you go for the closest approximation. I I I can't think of anything better in the the moment than chocolate. It's not going to kill you. It's not like cocaine, it's not heroin, it's legal, and it's and it does the trick. So I will tell my clients, you need to, you need chocolate, <laughs> I would not take chocolate away from you. And because they try, everybody has tried, who's addicted to chocolate, they try to take chocolate away. But it's if chocolate's the most important thing, you start to get miserable, you're unhappy because nothing's giving you pleasure, nothing's giving you happiness. So we have to really look at life and say, how can you have aspects of your life that are better than chocolate or at least equal to it or close to it? And I'll go through all the domains of life with a person. Where are you at in relationship? Where are you at with intimacy? Are you giving your gifts? Do you like your job? And invariably, people need to expand themselves. They need to grow as humans and have a fuller life. And as you have a more full life, chocolate becomes less important. So it's not about fighting the chocolate. No, like eat the chocolate. And while you're eating the chocolate, let's look at the areas of life that we're really going to focus on. Are you afraid of getting out there and dating? Are you afraid of being in relationship? What do we do about that? How do we talk about that? I meet so many people, particularly women, who they're single and they're afraid to be in relationship, afraid to date because they think they have to lose fill in the blank. Five pounds, 10 pounds, 15 pounds, 20 pounds. And they, and, and they haven't dated in years for that reason. And to me, that's unacceptable. I'll, I'll say to them, do you know anyone who looks like you and has your same body and they're happily married? Or they're happily in a relationship. And it's always yes.
0: Well, what about the subconscious things that are holding us back that we don't know? Like I could say, okay, I don't want to be in a relationship because I need to lose 50 pounds, but nobody is going to be attracted to me, so I'm not even going to try. But what about the subconscious uh, sense of self? You know, I'm not worthy that we developed early in life, the subconscious core limiting beliefs.
1: Yes. So it is such an important question. It's imperative, I think, when working with a person's relationship with food and working with their unwanted eating habits, their unwanted eating behaviors, to look at what some of their core beliefs are that are limiting them. And yes, one of the most common core beliefs is I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy. So if I'm not good enough and I'm not worthy, then why should I take care of myself? Because I don't deserve to be healthy or I don't deserve to be in a relationship. So and if I don't deserve to be healthy and I don't deserve to be in a relationship, that's a horrible feeling. And I need to somehow get out of that horrible feeling. So what am I going to turn to? Sugar, carbs, alcohol, chocolate, whatever food is going to make me feel good. So it becomes this interesting sort of vicious cycle and getting to our core beliefs and helping people identify here's what you're believing and you know this belief is an old one you adopted that belief when do you first remember thinking those thoughts i might ask a person and and sometimes they'll say i was six i was seven eight nine ten whatever age it was they'll remember and i'll say great you had a good reason for adopting that thought why because the world was constantly giving you messages that you're not good enough. Maybe your parents said that, maybe your siblings said that, maybe your boyfriend or your girlfriend said that. Maybe the television was somehow saying that to you. And now you're an adult and we can look at those beliefs and say, does that work for me? Is that actually true? So it's my job if I'm working with somebody's unwanted eating challenge to help them identify those those toxic beliefs and encourage them to do the practice, it's a practice, to start to change that. I'll tell you, Donna, another, I call it a toxic dietary belief. There are toxic beliefs that people have about food and body that really hold them back. One of the most common toxic dietary beliefs that I've seen is food is the enemy. Food is what? Say it again. Food is the enemy.
0: Enemy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I see that all the time. People have stuck and them, pushed themselves into a box where they're eating five foods. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Well, uh, there's they, many they versions hope, this is of bad. that.
1: This is bad. They don't. Exactly. You know, and, yeah. Okay. So it's the good foods or the bad. Foods these are affecting me or I'm trying to lose weight. I can't lose weight. How come I have weight? Because I eat food. Food equals weight on my body. So if I eat food, I'm actually eating the enemy because my enemy is body fat. Where does body fat come from? As far as I can tell, what science tells me, it comes from the food that I'm eating. Therefore, every time a person has their appetite stimulated three, four, five, six times a day, they will literally go into a stress response. Or every time they sit down to a meal Every time the brain senses enemy, this is, this, is, this is how the primitive brain works. The brain senses an enemy or it senses threat. And we will go into some degree of physiologic stress response, fight or flight response, sympathetic nervous system dominance, all the different ways of saying the same thing. And as part of the stress response, depending on the intensity of that stress, your digestion goes into some degree of digestive shutdown. Assimilation decreases nutrient excretion increases. And on top of that, our appetite is deregulated during a stress response. And on top of that, if that stress response is more day in and day out and low lying, we tend to produce more cortisol and insulin. Those two hormones will track each other. And for a significant amount of people, when we have elevated cortisol and insulin constantly, It can signal the body to store weight and store fat and not build muscle, which is the opposite of what every dieter wants. So the simple belief, the toxic belief, food is my enemy, literally creates a cascade of physiochemical reactions in the body that take us in the opposite direction of where we want to go. And in a way, we're going against natural law. You might as well walk around thinking, breathing is my enemy, or the sun is my enemy. Um, No, breathing is your best friend. Food is your best friend. Thank goodness you have it.
0: Okay, you're under the stress. Certain foods eliminate stress. Alcohol does, for example, and uh, that's easy to go to that. But what about, you know, we've been fed certain foods all of our life. Like, I grew up in the South, so... You know, uh, we had a certain, a certain kind of food, a lot of fat and barbecue and kind of stuff like that. I fortunately do not have any craving for that. But a lot of people default back to what they were raised on. Like it's what they grew up doing and they have these habits. How, how are those habits or those very known, you know, the diet they grew up on is so comfortable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What, what about that? Like how, how do you break habits?
1: Yes. Gr- wonderful question. Here's how I approach that. Um, When you're mentioning habits, I'm assuming it's the the sort of unwanted habits. And the unwanted habits that we're talking about, if we really examine them, they tend to be automatic. They just do themselves. You know, wake up in the morning and say, I need to really reproduce my chain smoking habit today. Or I really need to make sure I'm fueling my sugar habit. No, it's automatic. It's unconscious and it's repetitive, automatic, unconscious, and repetitive. That is the hallmark of an unwanted habit. So in my experience, there is only one way under the sun to transform a habit, which is automatic, unconscious. That's the most important word and repetitive, which is to introduce consciousness, We must introduce consciousness. We must introduce awareness. We must introduce a form of practice. Because otherwise, the habit is just going to keep doing itself. I I remember somebody once said, I don't know, I was at some workshop, and they said, when you put on your pants, you always put the same leg in first. And if you try to put the other leg in first, it's going to seem really weird. And sure enough, they were right. I couldn't believe how hard it is to put my left leg in first because I've been doing the right leg in first my entire life. I wouldn't have never known. Now, in order to change that habit, I would have to start to practice putting the other leg in first. I would have to willfully, consciously choose, I wish to do this because I think it's gonna benefit me. Well, ah, the leg thing's not gonna benefit me, but you know something? If I determine that this excess sugar in my diet doesn't work for me, then again, this is, a, this, is about, this is about personal growth. This is about spiritual growth. This is about maturity. This is about stepping out of immediate gratification and us learning that the mind is essentially a tool. And yeah, a lot of us are good at using our minds in certain ways. And in other ways, we're not so good. And a lot of times the mind has a habit. I like sugar. Why? My mom ate it when I was in the womb and she fed it to me all those other years. So yeah, your body's conditioned. Absolutely. Your DNA is conditioned. So that's a challenge. And the only way to decondition that is to introduce conscious practice, which is work. And not a lot of people want to do that. Well, just just tell me the pill to take. You know, and, and for some people, yeah, we might be able to correct some nutritional deficiencies or some gut deficiencies that are helpful. But even to do that, you'd have to be regularly taking certain pills. You'd have to be focusing on going to your practitioner. So I think, to me, our relationship with food and body Here's the punchline: Our relationship with food and body, to me, is always asking us to grow somehow. It's asking us to grow as a person. Whatever challenge you have, I don't care what it is. It's a health challenge. You, you, can, you and I can be victims about it, like "woe is me." Why is this happening to me? Or you can do what you did and I did, which is you got curious about your health challenges. You explored. You read. You got fascinated. And you got determined and you stayed awake. And you Well, kept...
0: and two things I would like to interject. First of all, fear was another emotion uh, <laughs> that was in the picture. Like, yeah. is fear also a factor in driving you to not take care of yourself, to not eat well?
1: You know, fear is, as you said, a very powerful motivator. I'm just always gauging when I'm in dialogue with somebody how much is fear driving one's behaviors, particularly in relationship with food. As an example, I've worked with a number of people over the years who are highly sensitive individuals who couldn't eat this, couldn't eat that, Mm -hmm. they had a very limited diet and they were living in absolute fear. Living in fear of, oh my God, I'm gonna eat the wrong thing, I'm gonna have a reaction, I'm gonna have Mm -hmm. a
0: symptom. see that all the time.
1: Okay and what I've noticed for many of those people not all but many of them is that that fear was existent in other parts of life and that fear was a tremendous motivator and to me when fear is the number one motivator w- fear equals stress response stress response equals stress physiology stress chemistry that equals inflammation, that equals mitochondrial dysfunction, mitochondrial death, that equals poor digestion, assimilation, calorie burning, all of it. So sometimes it's about helping people dial down their fear and literally notice that that fear response, that survival response is driving them. A survival response is wonderful in survival moments. <laughs> You're driving your car, somebody almost hits you. Yeah, you better be afraid. Hit the brakes, swerve your car, be present. Fear is a very good thing in that moment. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a God-given feature of our nervous system. And we're not designed to be in a stress response all the time. We're designed to be in a stress response, ideally for two or three minutes when the lion's chasing you. And at some point, something's gonna happen. You beat it up, it eats you, you get away, whatever. But the stress response is designed to give us a, just an amazing metabolism for a few minutes. So part of, I think, our growth as human beings, remember our relationship with food and body is here to help us learn and grow as a person. A lot of it is learning how to modulate our fear. And the opposite of that would be learning how to trust more.
0: Yes, that's very important. So I want to use a scenario that many people are very familiar with. So we have this two years of lockdown where people were very isolated. They're listening to the TV. They're getting scared to death with a lot of, unfortunately, wrong information, information. Um, uh, they don't know enough so they can be easily manipulated into feeling like their life is threatened, you know? And so tons of fear there. So they're inside and they're bored and there's nothing to do. So they're eating more than they ever ate before. And maybe probably not even again, eating like they're not having a nice healthy meal with vegetables and healthy protein and all that. They're eating carbs and junk to make them feel better. So the other thing you just mentioned, trust. I mean, I remember in child development when I was studying, uh, Eric Erickson was talking about the um, different hierarchies of emotions that we go through as we grow up. And, you know, trust is the basic. If you never learn to trust as a baby, you can't learn to love others or yourself or anything, or even reach that very high level where you're more of a philanthropic person where you care about many other people, you know, instead of just yourself. You know, you're. I love that. It's one of the things I remember most. But, um, so here we are in real lifetime, you know, people are still uh, dealing with this. Uh, you turn on the TV, um, maybe right now it's not the top of the, you know, they're not pushing out on the media, but you. But just a couple of days ago, you know, they started saying, okay, it's resurging, you know, we may have to go back in the mass. So this is like maybe an ongoing thing we're going to have to live with a long time. Like we really want to get into the school, the coaches that you're training all over the world that are coming to learn from you. I mean... I just learned from you to be certified to be able to help other people since there's only one of you. But um what can you speak to that like this event that so many people are just have been going through but also let's move if we could into the coaching program because obviously now there's many more people than ever mm-hmm. needing coaches.
1: Yes. You know, the last 2 years have been a very fascinating laboratory of the human experience and i know so many people who you know friends family loved ones who reached out to me and i'd be in conversation about covid and be in conversation about whatever they were worried about and a lot of people extremely worried and a tremendous amount of anxiety and a tremendous amount of fear and
0: depression like they say that's a big issue right now Many, yeah. many people have become more depressed than ever.
1: Yes. I'm going to catch this thing. And, you know, once again, if I go back to our relationship with food and body as a great teacher, I, I'm asking myself, okay, what's to be learned here? Well, one of the things we can learn is um, what's, what's one of the greatest immune suppressors known to humankind? Stress. There's lots of things that can suppress your immunity. Stress is, you know, up there in the top two or three, perhaps. So, yeah, you want to be alert. You want to be aware. But your level of stress, fear, anxiety might actually be taking you in the opposite direction of where you want to go, which is immune strength and immune health. And in many ways, the immune system is like a biological no you know, what does your immune system say to any toxin, any bacteria, any virus, any pathogen, any organism that it says, this is no good. It says, no, essentially, it gives it a biochemical physiologic, no. And I'm always interested for people to take control of their environment as best they can. And I noticed that for many people, one of the biggest stressors during lockdown in the last two years was how much news they were watching and how much television they were tuning into and how much bad news they were taking in. And I asked a lot of my friends and family and loved ones, I said, time to go on a media diet. If you need to know something, you'll know it. You can let go of the television for years if you wanted to. And you'll know exactly what you need to know. If that experience of being in the media, of being on social media is causing you more stress and more upset, then you have the power to control that because we're getting so many fear messages coming from the media in these last two years. We're getting conflicting messages from the media. And what I noticed, Donna, with people who are not um who don't study health for a living when they hear different viewpoints from the experts they go a little bonkers they get very confused because why am I hearing different things science should just be one unified voice and I think people need to learn welcome to planet earth science is not one unified voice nutrition is not one unified voice oh my gosh we are we are very young we we are young in terms of what we know about health what we know about the body and what we know about how to live so if i can acknowledge that and relax into that then if i hear conflicting information i'm not going to go into anxiety and fear i'm not going to let myself get discombobulated i'm going to listen and then I'm going to make a choice. So, you know, I think for a lot of people, COVID has given them the opportunity to start to look at what is important. Because I've heard one of the chief complaints was, I'm lonely. I'm disconnected. I can't see my friends. Um, I have spent so much time on Zoom. I've been living, I would have been living on Zoom for two years. And honestly, I, three years ago, I would have said, there's no way. And I've reconnected with so many friends, so many people who are precious to me and having just group meetings with people I care about on Zoom. Um, you know, however we can create connection, I think is important during times like these and adopting an attitude of trust. Uh, you know, if, if you take care of yourself, eat good food, Do the lifestyle practices that you know are healthy for you and let the chips fall where they may live your life.
0: He actually reminded me of something that I think is important. Um, Let's say that you're tuning into the media all the time. You're listening to all these people. You're hearing conflicting information. Uh, Should you be carnivore? It's so good for fertility or whatever a thousand things and all these people with testimonials say oh my gosh i'm carnivore and now i'm a whole different person and then you hear about low carb vegan whatever it's so confusing for people today but here's the same with the media um i think what i've learned long ago wish everybody would learn is that we have this intuition we have our body speaks to us it gives us a lot of clues when something's working or not working So if all your energy and focus is on the media and what they're telling you, what other people are telling you in their podcasts or whatever, you can't find what's right for you. And with you, you've got to be spending alone time with you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and the thing is, the body's changing all the time. Its needs are changing. So maybe you do need to be on a low carb diet initially. That's what I suggest to people, low carb, but you don't want to always be on a low carb you don't want to always be eliminating all the fodmap food, uh, foods for example because there's a front and back to everything so yes there's a good reason for doing it but you know it's got a backside to it and so uh, ultimately I do think we definitely need to learn I think knowledge is extremely important but then in the end does it work for you and then you have to try it and then get quiet and still and watch um also things you know t- to me we, one of our principles in body ecology is the principle of step by step so and i'm sure this is true in the psychology of eating program which i really want to get into um people can't just do everything they can't they can't listen to our podcast and say okay i'm getting rid of the fear i'm not going to be depressed anymore i'm not going after cookies <laughs> i got it you know but they're not going to be very successful so step by step is important too but like I'm sure, I'm sure you'll probably agree with that. But do you want to say anything about that? And then can we go into the psychology of eating program? All yeah. the coaches that you're training, uh, like I said from the, in the very beginning, your program really needs to be in all nutritional programs and medical schools and everything, in my opinion, because it's a game changer. Yes.
1: Yeah. Thank you. So to your point, step-by-step, who was it? You know, the the Taoist philosopher Lao Tzu said, you know, "The journey of ten thousand miles begins with the first step." And we are so conditioned to wanting to win the lottery, like I want it all at once, immediate gratification. Give me all the money. Give me the pill that's going to make me lose weight. Give me the one secret that's going to change it all. And this is part of us maturing into adults, into kings and queens into our royal self, which is understanding that things take time and celebrating the small steps, celebrating the little successes, because if we don't celebrate the little successes and we're constantly looking for the big win, then we're missing out on life, I think. Um, so our training, you know, gosh, it's, it's been in existence for, I don't know, since 2008, maybe, uh, it's an eight month fully online training and we have, I would say about 60% of our students are an already practicing professional, a naturopath, a doctor, a chiropractor, a health coach, fitness people, et cetera, et cetera, psychologists. The other 30, 40% are first time coaches and we train people how to work with weight and body image, overeating, binge eating, emotional eating, people who've been endlessly dieting. And we also talk about how to work with common health conditions that have a mind-body component like digestion, immunity, fatigue, and mood. So we combine nutrition and psychology and combine counseling and coaching tools to Figure out how to work with each person individually. You know, something like binge eating. There can be a thousand reasons why a human being binge eats. It might be very nutritionally related. Some people have the toxic nutritional belief, fat is bad. Fat and food is bad. Fat and food is evil. So if they're eating a very, I know so many people still who are eating a very low fat diet. And if you're deficient in essential fatty acids what's going to happen you're going to have all those def- all the deficiency symptoms you might have poor digestion you might have drier, oily skin you might have brittle hair you might have brittle nails hormones have- are
0: not you have to have healthy fat to have healthy hormones too yes oh yeah
1: so well, so 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 then what happens is the person's not eating fat and three or four o'clock comes in the afternoon and they're binging And they're binging because they think they have a willpower problem. But what's happening is the brain is accurately assessing, Hey, you are missing something. Something's off. The brain isn't always smart enough to say, yo, you're missing essential fats. Usually for most people's brains, the brain is just going to scream hungry, just eat. And so people will binge on anything and everything. But it's actually a biologically driven eating that makes perfect sense to the body because the body thinks it's starving. The body thinks it's dying. It needs a key macronutrient that we're not getting. And meanwhile, this person thinks they have a a terrible binge eating issue that means they're broken or there's something wrong with their mind. And no, you have a toxic nutritional belief that's actually affecting your body.
0: I'm so glad you said that. I was just recently reading and learning how the two very critical protein and fats have to be, you have to eat them. Then the brain gets a signal that shuts off your desire to eat. The brain, you've got to have the protein and fat. So people that are continuing like on a low-fat diet and they're eating all the time, they're not getting the fat that the brain needs. Uh, And the protein can be in a number of sorts you know, from a number of sources, it does not have to be animal protein necessarily. But um, in the program, how much, in the over the eight months, how much are people, how much is nutrition? How much is psychology? Like, are they getting both? Especially yeah. the newbies, the people that are not already a registered dietitian or whatever.
1: Yes, people are getting both and they're getting what I call nutrition's greatest hits. Uh, I think what happens is for a lot of people, people think that they have to know every arcane nutrition fact under the sun in order to know something about nutrition. And you speak to most nutritional doctors, most good functional nutritionists, and they'll tell you, you can, you can just work with 90% of the challenges that you see. You clean up somebody's diet in a basic way. You, you, you take away some of the offending food, some of the typical allergens, you have them eating nutrient dense food. You can clear up a lot of issues for a majority of people. So I will tend to we we, we focus on what I consider are the most important nutritional principles that are going to work for a majority of human beings, and 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 that's just practical. Um, so at the same time, we're we're looking to help people learn to assess somebody, you know. Is this a nutritional issue? Is this an emotional issue? Is it a combination of both? So we just looked at binge eating as an example where somebody's belief is creating a biologically driven hunger, which causes them to binge eat. And I have to help that person change their belief. I have to educate them that here's what an essential fat is. Here's why you need it. Here's why they call it essential. You experiment for two weeks eating these following foods, we're going to include some fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is, some avocado, some olive oil, some coconut oil. It's, it's, if you want to swallow some fish oil, we can do that too. And you tell and, and notice what happens to your binge eating. People will, people will stop that binge eating within two days once they replete their body. Um, now, there's a whole other subset of people who binge eating is driven from an emotional place, meaning I'm having a relationship issue and something's not working and I'm not communicating. I'm not saying what's going on for me. I'm afraid to speak. And oftentimes when that happens and I'm withholding and I'm in fear and I'm in anxiety, that a fear and anxiety builds up and that creates a stress response. And how do we reduce that stress response? (sighs) We eat. Because if you eat enough, your brain goes, huh, there's a lot of food in my belly. And in order for me to digest that food, I actually need to be in a relaxation response. So if you eat enough food, you end up a couch potato, i.e. at some point you relax so your body can digest that food. So for some people, binge eating becomes this metaphorical enactment of the stress and the stress relief. But binge eating is not the problem. Binge eating is a symbolic behavior that's pointing to something else. Is it your relationship? Is it pointing to your relationship with your mother, your father, your, your challenge as a parent, your grief about this, your anger about that? And usually it's easy to help a person locate where the real action is. So we have to look at nutrition. We have to look at the mind and emotions. And that'll help us when it comes to overeating, binge eating, emotional eating, uh, so many other things.
0: Let's say a person has uh, an issue with their father, for example, uh, a lot of anger toward the father. And uh, it's coming out by eating, angrily eating. I mean, kind of a like beating themselves up, too. And just like relieves that, that feeling that they have, that they're totally not addressing stuck in there for a long, long time. Does the coach that the person's working with actually help them work that out, I could identify it, and deal with it, and I resolve the problem too, or are they just, yeah? I mean,
1: Absolutely. So, really, the first step is identifying it, mm-hmm. and identifying it in such a way that the client goes, "Oh, right." The second step is making the behavior, that unwanted behavior, making it right, meaning helping my clients see that this behavior, this unwanted binge eating behavior that's connected to my anger towards my dad makes perfect sense. It's not something that I should look in the mirror and go, something's wrong with me. Something's broken about me. No, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing broken about you. If you're angry at somebody, you always have a good reason to be angry. And for a lot of people, anger is a difficult emotion. It's not an easy emotion to express. The world doesn't like angry women, for example. The world doesn't particularly like angry men. So we're not encouraged to really know how to work with anger in a productive way. So it makes perfect sense that one would feel anger and then try to stuff it down with food because then I don't have to deal with it. But Then what happens is I stub it down with food. I don't feel so good. I feel a little guilty. And that those symptoms are helping us see. They're teaching us, hey, you don't like this symptom? Listen to it. Because the symptom is always a message from your guardian angel saying, listen to this symptom and look. What is this? What's this trying to teach you? Oh, I have anger towards my dad. Okay, great. Different ways to work with that. If he's not alive, then it might be writing a letter to your dead dad, saying all the things you never said. If he is alive, write that same letter. You don't have to send it to him. But let's just start to move that energy a bit. Because sometimes for that client, that person, this is the first time they're having this conversation. This is the first time they're allowing themselves to feel those feelings. And just that, is often enough for some people to begin to let go of the unwanted behavior, eating, and to be present to, oh, I have anger and I have a good reason to be angry. So a lot of times, specifically with anger, it's learning to embrace the anger and accept it and see how there was wisdom in it. And at the same time, How do I now use that energy and transform it? Because anger is energy. It's powerful energy. So what am I going to do with that energy that helps me be productive? How do I take it and turn it into fuel for goodness? So that's just Uh, some ways that we would learn to deal with that.
0: uh, I uh, used long ago, uh, learned long ago, a tool that John Gray taught called the love letter technique. So, um, you do exactly what you said. You write out this letter and express all the things that you're so angry about. You can even use cuss words and just get it out there. And but as soon as you have written it all out, you, a whole lot of that energy dissipates. But underneath that is sadness. So yeah. and then you can start to say, "It hurts so much. I'm so sad that you, just, you know, acted that way." But under the sadness, after you've written that out, is um, fear mm-hmm. i'm afraid that i'm not good enough uh there's something wrong with me or whatever i'm doing, doing a good job here but and then under that is a certain level where you can accept that you have also played a role in that relationship being like it was perhaps and then under that you can finally get down to the um sense of loving that person there because even though we're angry and we hate them in a lot of ways there's another part of us that still loves them and I always thought that was a nice tool to use. I'm sure you have many, but that's just an example, I think, of why working with a coach that can teach you a simple technique or a tool like that that can change your life is pretty amazing. Well, Do you you have, um, I know, how often do you do the course? Like um, just once a year or so if people are
1: waiting to to jump into it? Three times a year. We have an enrollment that starts in March, one in June, one in October. So, yeah, it's always always time to jump in. And yeah, just reach out to us at psychologyofeating.com. That's our website. You can go and learn all about us. We're also if you search for psychology of eating in Facebook, we have a we have a tons of free information there, tons of free resources on YouTube as well, but psychologyofeating.com, that's the place to go to learn more.
0: And there's a video right on the first page that you can click on where the, you have all these practitioners who graduated from the program. And you can see their sincerity in telling you what they got from the course. And, you know, they're practitioners now, they're helping people. And uh, they're just, it's just gave so much meaning to their life. So I'd love for people to watch that video, at least that. And I love it that you said you don't have to be a registered dietitian, a medical doctor, or whatever, whatever, you know certified you can actually if you've got this heart of really wanting to help somebody many people there's such a need for it in the world right now so i hope people that are listening to this mark that they go to the psychology of eating.com and they learn about your work and that they uh seriously start i mean being very serious about creating a career for themselves in in this field because it's so needed and um I just want to thank you very much for being on here. I hope, I hope we've got been a catalyst, you know, for people to sign up. I don't care if you aren't going to do anything with it. I think you'll gain so much just personally. And so thank you. I know you have a hard stop right now. So I just thank you so much. I love you. I always have from the minute we met. And I just think you've just created such a gift. So thank you for that.
1: Donna, thank you so much. Thanks for the kind words. I love you as well. Thanks for the opportunity to be in this conversation and speak to the people in your world. And yeah, more to come for us. Sounds good. Thank you. Take care now.
0: And for everybody listening, thank you for staying uh, on this long and following us to the end. And hopefully, you know, you've gained a lot from this. I know I have just listening to Mark. So thank you all for listening. Body Ecology is not a diet. It's a way of life based on seven universal laws that always guide us toward the truth. If you want to know more about us, about these seven universal laws, and about our amazing, effective products, go to our website, bodyecology.com. Also, for a free transcript of this show, go to our website. Again, that's bodyecology.com. And of course, if you like what you're learning, we'd be very grateful for a review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you've got a topic you want to learn about, just let us know. This information does not replace the advice of your doctor or healthcare professional. Thank you very much for listening. And here's to a happier, healthier world.